Hi, I'm Rachel Gazdick, and this is Formative, the podcast where today's leaders are interviewed by the leaders of tomorrow. Formative is a show about perspective, and today's guest has had the kind you can only get from 350 miles above the surface of our planet. Dr. Charles Camarda is a retired astronaut whose 2005 mission aboard Space Shuttle Discovery marked NASA's return to space after the tragic explosion of Space Shuttle Columbia. Following his time in orbit, Dr. Camarda served as the Director of Engineering at NASA's Johnson Space Center and the Senior Advisor for Innovation to the Office of NASA's Chief Engineer. My student co-host today is Jake from PS175 in the Bronx. Jake, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I was born in Bronxville, but immediately got moved to the Bronx. That's where my parents lived. I love making stories, and I love reading stories. I love playing games, and that's really that. Can you tell us a little bit about middle school and what you enjoy and your favorite subjects? Well, it's only really a favorite subject, to be honest. I love writing. Well, actually, technically subjects, because reading and writing are kind of the same thing, but uh, I would say reading and writing. Middle school is honestly extremely difficult just because of math. Slope, I don't understand slope. I uh, rise or run, yeah, I understand that, but actually, like, making the slope is impossible to me, but apparently it comes, like, easily to someone else, but not to me. I don't know why. Well, let's bring in Dr. Camarda to get this conversation started. Thank you so much, Dr. Camarda, for being here today. Jake, what's your uh, first question? Well, I don't want to start off with, like, anything too crazy, so I'll start off with something simple. What is your favorite sport? Oh, geez. It changed over time, Jake. You know, uh, when, when I was growing up as a kid in New York, I loved to play handball. You grew up in the Bronx, so you know what a handball court is, right? Yes. Right. And so that was like one of my favorites. We played all sports, but I was really the best at handball. And uh, when I moved to Virginia, when I started working for NASA, I actually started working for NASA in 1974, Jake. So I'm a lot older. Yes. I had a life before I went to Johnson Space Flight Center and became an astronaut, right? I was a research scientist for about 22 years at NASA Langley. But um, when I was growing up in the city, it was handball. When I moved to Virginia, it was racquetball. I loved to play racquetball. And uh, also, I dabbled in a little bit of boxing and karate when I was in, in New York and late at high school years in college. Um, do you have a favorite planet? Do I have a favorite planet? Uh, right now, it's planet Earth. But my epic challenge and the epic challenge I bring to students is going to Mars. I know we have a big push going to the moon first and colonizing the moon. But I think uh, the real challenge is going to be getting to Mars. We actually had Mars Week at our school, and we had a Zoom with a person named Hagen Cox. And it was really interesting to have this person come to school and tell us a little bit more about Mars. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Mars also has an atmosphere, and it has water. And so I think that's a good opportunity for us to potentially explore colonizing another planet. That would be a good first, first step. Our first lesson in science was about the geosphere, hydrosphere, atmosphere, and whatever. And we learned that Mars is actually really close to being like Earth. And the 
the the glaciers on Mars gave us an example that there was once water on Mars, but then it froze to become glaciers. That's that's correct. And so where is it now? You know, it might be at the North Pole and the South Pole. It also may be in the regolith and underneath the regolith. It could be in craters that are constantly shadowed. And so it, it never the temperatures never go above freezing. And so that's where we're exploring right now. And scientists have been exploring and identifying which are the which are the best places for us to land. Right. So. Would you live on Mars if you had the choice? Well, right now, right now, I don't know, uh, Jake. You, you know, I um, I have four grandchildren, and I love my grandchildren and my family, and so I don't think I'd want to leave them at this point in my life for several years to go have fun on the surface of Mars. If you would have asked me that about 10, 15 years ago, I would say yes. But now it's no. Now it's no, because I'm at a point in my life that I have a a few things I want to do other than have fun and fly in space. And I want to get those done. Speaking of of some things to do on Earth, do you do you have any hobbies or maybe personal interests on Earth? Well, yeah, I have a couple of uh, interests on Earth. And so I love kids. I love uh, teaching kids, and um, and so I have an educational nonprofit, and we run a program called the Epic Challenge Program, where I try to get students of all ages and uh, to try to solve problems that even NASA can't solve, and we teach them how to solve these problems, how to work together in teams to solve these problems, and we've experimented with this over the past 10 years at the a graduate level, undergraduate level, high school level, and we're starting to look to move it down to elementary school and middle school. Because I think what's really cool is kids like at your age in middle school have unlimited creativity. They haven't been taught too much and taught to, you know, what's right and what what their teachers think are right and wrong or most probable to happen. And so you have unlimited uh, playing field, if you will, to be creative and come up with crazy ideas like like what you're re- doing now, reading um, science fiction, fantasy stuff. A lot of that stuff that was just fantasy became reality, especially when it comes to space. I do agree that middle schoolers do have a lot of creativity. Myself, I literally can't stop thinking. I can't stop creating. I can't stop writing. I can't stop doing anything. My Creative juices just won't stop. And that's and we don't want that to stop. Okay. We don't want that to stop. And so my big job is finding older kids, like in graduate school, and older kids at NASA, if you will, and get them to relearn how to be creative, how to fail, the importance of failure, and how to learn from failure. I watched Jurassic Park 3, and the main character said there are two types of people, astronomers and astronauts. So what made you want to become an astronaut? Well, I grew up at a very exciting time, much like the times you're growing up right now. Okay, when I when I grew up, people never flew in space. Okay, we were just starting to fly in space. And it was the United States versus the Russians as to who led the space race, who got to space first. And so astronauts were my heroes back then, because not only were they were they really cool and sharp technically, but they were test pilots. 
They were flying these outrageous fighter jets, exploring the unknown, putting their life on the line. And so uh, I grew up admiring my role models were the Mercury 7 astronauts, the first seven astronauts that flew in Mercury, Gemini, and later Apollo. And so I love science and I love math. And that's just something I wanted to do. I would like to hear about her reaction to Neil Armstrong when he first landed on the moon. Wow. I could, I could absolutely tell you what that felt like because I grew up during that era in the Cold War. And so if you could imagine two countries that were almost ready to go to war with each other are now in this space race. And this was really a contest of not only the technical excellence of the countries were at stake and who had better technical folks, understanding of science and engineering, but really a test of ideologies, which was the best ideology right? And which would produce the best thinkers, the best scientists. And so a a lot was at stake. And so President Kennedy put that, drew that line in the sand and said, you know what, we're going to set boots on the ground on the moon. We would have humans on the moon. We would bring them back safe in less than 10 years. When we actually did it, I mean, everyone was holding their breath, At that time, we had these very small little TVs. We were huddled around. We didn't have these great big screen TVs. And we were just watching that uh, Neil Armstrong put that first boot uh, on foot of the moon. And it was um, totally, totally exciting. It was everyone around the world was watching or listening at that moment in time. It was really exceptional. I imagine you watching Neil Armstrong take his first step on the moon. And I just imagine like you may were, you were like Tom Hanks during that scene in Apollo 13, where he was just, he wasn't crying, but he wasn't emotional, but he, he was just so happy that they finally were able to put someone on the moon that you couldn't help but cry. Yes, it's very emotional. It was very emotional at that time. But another thing that's really cool, just seeing humans fly in space. And I know I was working for NASA for 22 years, Jake, and I finally got to go down to a Kennedy Space Center and watch a launch. And you're standing there with thousands of people. And it's, and all of a sudden, thousands of pounds of thrust are lit off. Uh, the, uh, the spaceship gets ready to start lifting up into space. You hear the the vibrations, the pressure waves come and hit your chest so that it's basically beating on your chest as you're standing about six miles away. And you're looking up and you're thinking there are people on the tippy top of that vehicle inside the space shuttle. And as you're watching the people around you, tears are just falling, streaming down their eyes. And it's it's just an amazing sight. It's it's uh, people are uh, whether they're overcome with emotion, uh, overcome with happiness and joy, it's just an amazing feeling. But I got to meet those people that were my heroes. I got to meet Neil Armstrong and John Young and Buzz Aldrin. And John Young worked at Johnson Space Flight Center when I was an astronaut. He was just another astronaut, just like me. So as an astronaut, I would say John Young was, was my mentor. Wow, that's on. I, I'm honestly starting to get emotional as well. <laughs>
Dr. Kamardi, I'd love to hear more about your uh, mission into space and what you did on ISS. And tell us more about what an aerospace engineer does. Okay. So, you know, Jake, we have all different people that become astronauts. They're not just engineers and scientists. We have doctors, we have medical doctors, we have veterinarians, we have teachers, we have test pilots, we have navigators, we have Navy SEALs, and we have people that have flown helicopters and all different kinds of jets. I was a researcher at NASA Langley, and my research area was on hypersonic vehicles. Hypersonic vehicles are any vehicles that fly faster than five times the speed of sound. Aerospace engineers were looking at not only space vehicles, but aeronautics. We're looking at airplanes. There are many different aspects of engineering that you have to understand in order to be able to design airplanes and, and space vehicles. How does the fluid flow over a vehicle cause these different forces, which we call lift and drag, which allow a vehicle to fly? We learn about structures and, and how, do the, how do you build these structures out of these different materials so they can withstand the different types of loading conditions? We have flight mechanics. How does the vehicle fly and stay stable? The area of research that I worked on was called thermal structures. We were looking at developing structural systems and subsystems that basically had to survive and be reusable for many missions on a a hypersonic vehicle. Pieces of the structure that would go up over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit down to minus 420 degrees Fahrenheit, like the cryogenic tanks. And and what I, I worked on a lot was the thermal protection system. And so when I was selected to fly, I was selected right after the Columbia accident. I was training in Russia when the accident happened. You know, a large piece of foam came off the vehicle. It struck the space shuttle. I got my little space shuttle here. I don't know if you could see it, but it struck the vehicle right right by the wing leading edge. And the people on the ground, when they saw this foam hit during launch of the space shuttle, the crew was already in orbit. And when they saw the video, they didn't know if it was caused damage or if it caused critical damage. They said that it wouldn't have caused damage and the crew was safe to fly back. And they made a very, very bad mistake. And so when I came back from Russia, you know, we weren't going to fly for another two and a half years. We had to understand what caused the problem. And then we had to be able to fix the problem to make sure that we wouldn't lose another crew. And so I spent a lot of time working on uh, creating teams to help solve these problems and creating methods for repairing the vehicle in case the next vehicle that flew, the same thing happened. The astronauts could go outside and fix the vehicle. So I really believe I was selected on that flight because of my expertise in thermal structures and actually being one of the people that was helping to develop these repair techniques. The other thing I was highly trained on was basically flying the robotic arm. And so we have two robotic arms, one's in the belly of the space shuttle, right? That once we get in orbit, we open up the payload bay doors on space shuttle and we let out this robotic arm. And so we had designed this special 50 foot boom that we would attach to the end of the robotic arm so that when we were in space, we could inspect the vehicle. Because what we wanted to, the next crews that flew in space, we wanted to be able to make sure that they did not get damaged by any debris and they could be able to inspect their vehicle 
while they were in orbit to say they were safe to come home. The work you have done seems extremely sophisticated. Is there a lot of math involved? Tremendous amount of math, Jake. Uh, more math than I ever really needed to use. I basically got an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, a graduate degree, a PhD. And I, so I had very high levels of math. But it was also important to me because I was going into a specific field that required that. I was going into a research field. And what I would say to you, Jake, is don't give up on math. Slope is not that difficult. And have other people teach you because the person teaching you a certain concept maybe doesn't connect with you and the way you learn. Go online, go to places like the Khan Academy, uh, CK12, and listen to other people explain these same concepts. And when the right person connects with the way you learn, Jake, it will become very easy. And so that's the trick to math and not giving up. You might not get to use it, but it, it allows you to understand why math is, is important. We use math in everything we do. If you weren't engineering for NASA, what else would you like to create? Well, you know, if I wasn't engineering at NASA, and, and these are different times now, right? Like if I was a student right now, I don't think I'd want to work for NASA. I think I'd want to work for SpaceX. I'd want to work for one of these other companies that's actually doing things that are further out. NASA has changed. We need to get back to doing real research, applied research. We need to have that vision. We stopped looking further and further out to have the next generation um, rocket engine or, or ion thruster, if you will. And so... Uh, I want, I want to work for people that have a vision, looking to do things that are impossible to do, very hard to do. Dr. Kamarda, you know, you've talked about learning from failure. I'm wondering if you could share with, with Jake what you've learned over the years. Yeah, and Jake, these are very important lessons because failure, we have to fail. It's not only that, um, you know, you've heard, you know, Apollo 13, failure is not an option. You mentioned Apollo 13. I know Gene Kranz. He never said those words. And so when I teach my students, I say failure is not an option. It's a requirement. We have to fail. And we learn this as researchers. All researchers fail, right? And so we go in the laboratory, we conduct an experiment, and we determine when something is going to fail. And we want to understand if our analytical understanding of the physics of the problem will enable us to predict when that failure occurs. And it's only when we really understand this that we could say we really understand the phenomenon we are observing. And that's what scientists do. And that's what how scientists learn. But you experience failure every day, Jake, right? Do you have homework at, at school? Yes. And do you always get the answers right? Uh, definitely not. Definitely not, right? But you did it at home. You did your best. You made a mistake. And then what happens? And then I learn from it. I get better grades. And yeah. You figured out why you, you failed, right? Why did you get that answer wrong, right? Because we study, we study, we study. We think we understand something. And then we're asked the question on a homework. And we find out, well, I thought I understood it, but I really don't. So then you have to go back in, you have to dig back in, and you have to start studying a little deeper. And maybe you start looking at that problem from 
several different perspectives and you try to understand it, having different people explain it to you till you finally understand why you failed. And once you make that mistake on a homework, right, what, what's the probability that you'll make that same mistake again when you're asked that question? Probably extremely low. Extremely low, right? Because the lessons we learn from failure, we tend to not forget, right? And so our program, the Epic Challenge program, we teach students how to fail because there's a right way and a wrong way to fail. And you're learning how to do this in the safe environment of your home. You're not failing in public in case you're afraid that you fail in public and your friends make fun of you for failing and, oh, you you missed that. You have the convenience of going in your home and practicing and failing and learning from your failure. Unless you have a great environment, a great classroom where it's okay to fail and your teachers drum that into you, right, that it's okay to fail, you're going to be afraid to raise your hand and try to try something new. So that's what we have to get students of all ages, especially older people that have their PhDs and think they know it all, like the people that made the wrong decision on space shuttle. They thought they understood the problem and they really didn't. And what happened? We lost lives. People died because they were afraid to raise their hand and say they did not know. And so that's one of the first things I learned as an engineer, as a researcher, was that if I was going to go to a conference and present my body of research, what we call a paper, and and develop a presentation, if someone in the audience asked me a question and I didn't know the answer, My bosses made sure that I did not just say anything. I would tell them I did not know because that's the right answer, right? I do not know, but I will go research it and find out. Thank you. What is an important failure that you learned from? You know, I would say the whole Columbia accident. The whole Columbia accident made me realize something the cause of the accident. I was raised as a technical a technical person, very logical thinker, right? And so I, I could understand technically what caused the accident. But the real cause of the Columbia accident was the behaviors of those people, the culture of the organization, and the way those people did not work together effectively as a team to solve the problem. So what I had to do was learn a totally different field that was unknown to me. I had to learn about psychology, sociology, behavioral science, cognitive science. And so what I learned was how do people work together on teams? How do they work together effectively on teams so that they're high performing teams? We talked a little bit about what I call what we call psychological safety, being unafraid to raise your hand and say there's a problem, to question authority, to take interpersonal risk without fear of being punished by your friends, your peers, your comrades, or your employers, right? If Elon Musk is going to be successful, if we're going to be successful and fly humans in space, we have to be able to do it safely. And so we have to be totally transparent and honest. So, Dr. Kamara, I want to thank you for being on today's show with myself and Jake. 
We ask all our guests when we close out the show the same question. If you could go back in time and speak to yourself when you were 13, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Oh, wow. That is a really... That is a really good question. You know, Rachel, because I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. I think, but I think I had to make those mistakes. I think I would be a much better learner. I I learned from a very early age to, to think critically from my mom. She taught me how to learn, how to do research, how to go into the library and understand. I think I would try to be a little bit more diplomatic. Rachel, because when when I saw things that were wrong, I wasn't so diplomatic. I would definitely never, never give up and always fight the people that were doing something that I saw wrong. I would try to be diplomatic, but, you know, sometimes sometimes you can't be diplomatic, but I would try maybe a little harder. (laughs) Well, thank you. We are so grateful to you for spending your afternoon with us. I know Jake, Jake, do you have anything you want to say in closing? Um, I guess answer the question about if I could say anything to my younger self, if I was 18 and I was talking to my 13 year old self, I would say that um, just continue what you enjoy and stop analyzing and over, over analyzing things. Cause sometimes it's annoying. <laughs> hey, can, can I say something? Can I say something to the 13 year old Jake? Yeah. Don't give up on math, Jake. And don't let people think that, oh, just because you didn't get it, you're not good in math. All right. That's not true. Everyone's not good in math. You have to learn how to do it and you could teach yourself. I was not great in math. A lot of astronauts were not great in math. And it's difficult if you don't have the right teacher at a certain level in math, you may feel like it's not for you. But don't don't put that all on yourself. Look for other teachers, look for other mentors, but don't put that bit in your mind. I'm not good at something. Okay. And game development, you are going to have to know math. I know. It was scary. <laughs> no, it's not scary. You just have to put the time in. I mean, it takes hard work, right? But you you could you could do it and you find the right mentors to help you. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, this was fun. It's fun meeting you, Jake. It was fun. It was fun meeting you too. Thank you. I miss the Bronx. I miss miss New York. Hope to be there soon. Thanks for listening to Formative. I'm your host, Rachel Gazdick, CEO of New York Edge. My co-host today was Jake from PS175 in the Bronx. He was assisted by Jesse Cowan. Our guest today was former astronaut Dr. Charles Camarda. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car. The show is produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert, post-production and original music by Garrett Tiedemann, production manager Gabriella Montekin, executive producer David Hoffman. Thanks to the whole team here at New York Edge for making this series possible. Never miss an episode of Formative by subscribing to the series at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.